May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie <laughs> dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus. Good morning, good morning. I'm Cooper Stagna, National Recruiting Analyst with 24-7 Sports alongside my colleague, Andrew Ivins. we got a jam-packed show today talking a little bit about college football and a little bit about recruiting. That's what we do every Tuesday at 9.30. We're going to start in the SEC West with a little bit of drama between Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher, and then we'll get into what we did this weekend. I went down to New Orleans to go see the nation's number one passer in Arch Manning. Andrew was in Tampa, going to see Keon Keeley, top 24-7 in Notre Dame, uh, defensive lineman as well. So we'll get into Georgia's big weekend recruiting-wise. We'll also get into IMG's spring game. And then we got a couple of new segments that we're really excited about. Hilo Casino, the stock market, one of those. And then we got some questions from Late Kicks, Josh Pate, Chris Hummer from 24-7 Sports as well, Adam Stanko, and then our favorite uh, Twitter personality as well, Pin and Pull, also got a question in there as well. But Drew, I want to start with the elephant in the room, the Florida Panthers. They go down 0-4 to the Tampa Bay Lightning. A little in-state rivalry there. What are, your, what are your thoughts and can I get a vibe check from you as you head into the offseason? Vibes are low. Very, very low. Back-to-back. Uh, -back. I, I did not expect a sweep. I think I said we would win game one last Tuesday 5-2 to two, and then we lose. So uh, vibes are at a low, but it was an awesome season. You know, I don't think I've been in that invested into a sports franchise in, in a while. I mean, I think I probably went to 30 home games. So vibes are low, but it's the sun rose this morning. And, you know, I got my my 515 workout in and I'm already thinking about getting season tickets for next year. So I, I'm ready to rock. I got to, you know, apologize for my backdrop. It's a bit of a mess right now. My floors are being redone. So you might be seeing here some hammering at some point during the show. But I'm ready to rock. Uh, we got, what, June coming up. Crazy time in the recruiting calendar. I still got spring games down here. I'm going to be at some tonight. So I'm powering forward on, on, to the next, on to the next big thing. How about that backdrop? I was a little concerned when I saw that this morning. He told me about, you know, three or four minutes before we jumped on here. And then he well, said I, he's, I, he's got to get off a little bit early. I started I started assembling it. My fiance is like, no, they're they're coming back today. So it's it's a shell of what it was. But I found this cool game day helmet from or on this side uh, from when I was like eight. Uh, got it at, at a Florida Florida State game. So that that has been added to the, the backdrop. <laughs> Longest show of the year. Andrew says, all right, we can only go thirty five minutes. So we're we're going to do our best. But Drew, let's jump right into it. Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher last week. It feels like a month ago, as much as we've heard this talked about. Uh, but these two, if you have not been following this or been hiding somewhere under a rock, basically, in short, Nick Saban uh, in a closed environment or what was supposed to be a closed environment last week, basically, the media was not uh, allowed. Uh, somebody had a camera. Uh, Josh Pate covered this all the time. You, you know, he should uh, probably be a little bit more uh, conscientious of the environment. But anyway, the quote goes some, something along the lines of A&M bought everyone on their roster. The next day we wake up, Jimbo Fisher has a press conference. He comes out 
he started throwing a word, you know, why do we call Nick Saban? He thinks he's a God. He's a narcissist, despicable, uh, all these words. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden we have a public rec uh, reprimand from the commissioner of the SEC and Greg Sankey. I mean, I couldn't process it when it was happening live. You know, I, I, I just kind of thought it was funny from formally working in the industry, kind of seeing these two kind of jostle over moral high ground when I think both of them probably have uh, both of them are have plenty of filth on, on their hands in terms of the way that that they've recruited at such a high level, whether that be at Florida State, Texas A&M or Alabama. And I'm not trying to throw stones, uh, but maybe maybe I guess I am. I, I'm interested to get your take on kind of what you thought about Nick Saban saying this, because I thought it was out of character and about Jimbo Fisher's response. Well, I mean, I have questions for you because you've been in the in the thick of it. And, you know, my understanding, having interacted with coaches at all different levels, is there's kind of some moral code where you don't call the other person out, right? You kind of just look the other way. Everyone's kind of tied in this thing together. So, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you. Am I, am I wrong on that? I mean, isn't there some general understanding where, hey, we're just all in this together? Um, so that, that, that's, that's the first thing that jumps out to me. The second thing, you, you mentioned Nick Saban didn't know he was on camera. I mean, I think you got to operate as everything's a hot mic. I mean, when we're on set at the CBS studio, you can't, you got to be watch what you say because you have no idea what's going to get picked up. And then, you know, the third thing on that is, I mean, I don't know if this is a theory or a take, but, it, but to me, I mean, Nick Saban's obviously clearly upset with the ruling and, and the state of college football right now. And he's kind of um, the guy. So, you know, I, I respect his opinion. I think a lot of people around the country respect his opinion. I mean, how many college programs are modeling what they do after Nick Saban? So I think when he speaks, we all listen. Um, but to me, that that whole act and, and what he said, I, I, that seemed like a, a rally cry to get some boosters on his side to, to drum up some support. That's how I took it. And then I just to get where we are now, where everyone's going back and forth and, you know, we're a week into this thing. It's, it's a little bit crazy and it's hard to process. And I just think it's going to make the, the, the season even more exciting, if, if we're going to be honest. That was really my first initial thought. I, I, I think the investment, if it was ever in question, which I don't believe it is, but in terms of now what Nick Saban is going to have behind him uh, in terms of a collection, if we want to call it that, let's just that that's the term that we'll use. Uh, you know, I, I do think that is what you said, to use your words, a little bit of a rallying cry. And uh, I just thought it was I thought it was interesting uh just in terms of uh you know calling the shot it in calling texas a&m out specifically and i understand that frustration they probably lost I, I mean you're talking about you know pate said it on his show seven defensive linemen within the top 100 uh end up signing with texas a&m which is just really unheard of um you know but certainly a lot of thoughts i think you got to tip your cap to texas a&m and i think that's what jimbo's saying look everything we did is legal uh, and it's by the book. So I don't understand the frustration, uh, you know, from parties uh, like Alabama in this situation. And I'm sure Jimbo's saying out of all the programs to take a shot at us, Alabama is going to be the one throwing stones. And I think he thought that was laughable. And, you know, talking about the moral code, but behind the scenes and all that type of stuff, you know, college football uh, to what it is now, what it's evolved to, to, to what it had been before, um, there's certainly teams, especially in the, in the Southeastern Conference, as we all know, um, you know, that that had, I don't want to say specific advantages, but they'll do whatever they need to do to win. Um, so talking about Alabama and, and Texas A&M, 
I think you, you could probably, you know, throw loop both of those programs and in, into the top of those programs, which is why uh, there's some of the, the most elite in college football. So I, I don't know where it goes. It, I, it, it, go ahead. Let me, let me throw this at you, right? I mean, this. what if like Jimbo stood up and, and complained about how the transfer portal is with uh, Alabama is essentially now just taking the top free agents on the market with what we've seen, you know, J Jameer Gibbs, Elias Ricks, uh, Jermaine Burton. You know, what, what if someone had done that? Because Jimbo's basically saying that we did everything within the rules. Nick Saban's counter, someone called him out for what they're doing in the transfer portals. I'm doing everything in the rules as well. So I also, that's also been kind of tossed around in my head in terms of why did why did Nick go after after Jimbo in this situation? I think he views Jimbo and Texas A&M as a direct threat. And I think he obviously felt that this year. That was the first loss that came at the hands of a former assistant was this past year. And then he lost to Kirby Smart in the national championship. So for him, when you take a step back and reevaluate, it kind of looks like the walls are closing in. And I think that maybe that's a little bit of an overreaction. Alabama is still going to be the, the number one or two program in the country. We talked about the recruiting class. I mean, Texas A&M had a historic class this past year, the best in college football history. Nick Saban and the tie were right there at number two, right? So it's not like they're bleeding chips here. But in terms of the arm race and, and college football, it's not as lopsided as it has been in the past in terms of what Alabama has been able to do in talent acquisition. Uh, and I think he felt that this past year between Texas A&M and between Georgia, all three of those guys, you could have looped in the same conversation. It really hasn't been like that for the Tide uh, in recent history. So when you look at the SEC West uh, and you look at Georgia coming out of the SEC East, Alabama's uh, path to Atlanta and the SEC championship is, is not all as guaranteed as it has been. I think that for him is why you're kind of starting to see now, now like I will say this, Pate made a great point. Both of these guys at the end of the day, were saying the same thing. You know, I think they're frustrated with the advantages that, you know, obviously Nick calling Jimbo out uh, be, because Jimbo was doing everything by the book the way Jimbo sees it. Um, but at the end of the day, they're both asking for regulation. Uh, but right now in this market, they're able to, operate freely and you know tip of the cap to Jimbo Fisher this is him taking advantage of what the NCAA is either struggling to enforce or allowing so I don't have any issue with Jimbo Fisher the way he responded the the job that they've done um, this is how you take advantage of what the NCAA gives you and you know if I was there in College Station there would be no reason uh, for us not to continue to do what they're doing right now. Hey, and it seems like, you know, the closer we've gotten to June, the more big names have gotten linked to Texas A&M, right? I was kind of wondering, you know, I think a few months ago I was tasked with writing, can Texas A&M repeat? Can they follow, how do they follow up this historic number one class, this best class of all time? And, and I didn't really have much answers. And the closer we've gotten to June and July, which is when Texas A&M made a big push last cycle for most of those big elite five stars, you know, more and more guys. Steve Wilfong, our colleague, reports Dante Moore potentially could visit the weekend of June 17th. You know, Hakeem Williams seems like that one's trending in, in Texas A&M's direction. The top 247 wide receiver, Cedric Baxter, uh, the top 247 running back in, in, in the state of Florida. And then Brandon Ennis, who we thought was a USC-Ohio State battle. All of a sudden he says, oh, no, Texas A&M's in there as well. So 
Uh, they're gearing up where I think June and July, we're going to see them crawl up the rankings. I think right now, what are they, 23 in the rankings? Alabama, 38. You know, where do you think these two teams finish? Yeah, I think both of these teams will be in the top five, especially from what we saw last year. It's going to be interesting. I, right now, it's very hard to evaluate. You got Notre Dame up top. I do think Notre Dame is going to be a top five or top six recruiting program this year. But Texas Tech's at number two with, with 20 commitments. You have Northwestern now in the top 10 at number eight with 14 commitments. They've had a really good May. They've landed eight commitments out of their 14 in the month of May. That is certainly not going to be the way uh, that it shakes out come December or February. But I do think the Aggies and in, in, in the Crimson Tide will both finish in the top five again. But that's that's enough from the from the SEC West there. That's 16 and a half point favorites, Alabama at home uh, against uh, the Aggies on October 8th in Bryant-Denny Stadium, which is going to be, tell you what, get your popcorn ready. That's going to be a heck of a game to watch. But Drew, I want to move on. And, and before we talk about Arch Manning, I want to start with you. You went down to Tampa this weekend, and this is one of the more intriguing players that I think we have in the cycle in top 24-7 defensive lineman, edge rusher, Keon Keeley uh, from Berkeley Prep down in South Florida. And one of the reasons is for that is we don't have any verified measurements on him. And he's probably the highest ranked player that we have without some verifieds. And for me, this is a guy that has continued to shoot up through the rankings. Now he's a top, uh, a, a top 10 prospect with, to me, he's got the ability to potentially move into the top five. I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you thought this weekend, seeing him live. I mean, as crazy it is, as it is, we're here in 2022 and I've never seen Keon Keeley out of camp. You know, he's never tested. We have no measurements, no verified anything like that. Uh, Berkeley prep in Tampa made it made a deep run in the state playoffs, but I can only be somewhere one place on a Friday night. So I made Keon Keeley. I made it a priority to go see him because, you know, again, we've never seen him. Uh, and he just checked the boxes right away. I mean, on a field, uh, warming up with 60 guys, it's really easy to identify who Keon Keeley is. I mean, he's all of six foot five. I, I would guess 230, 240 pounds. You know, he's got long arms built like an action figure in terms of he's got some defined muscle in the upper half. And he was just super impressive, man. They played Wiregrass Ranch, which is another large classification school uh, that had a Division One quarterback last year, but was breaking in a, a, a new starter. So um, they kind of game planned away from Keon Keeley, which, you know, most teams are going to do at the high school level on a Friday night. You're going to try to go away from the star player but Keon found a way to impact the game I think he had a batted pass uh next play he spins out of or uses a spin move on a block flushes out the pocket and I thought the most impressive thing from Keon Keeley was the motor and the backside pursuit you like to see that from defensive linemen at this stage in their development and Keon Keeley's just a guy that goes goes and goes you know is he a finesse edge rusher? I'm not sure. Is he, I think he's more of a kind of like a power-based player guy, but he's still got some moves to him, and it was just super encouraging to see that. He also played some tight end and offensive tackle, and he was pretty impressive there, moving some people, finding that leverage. So check the boxes off for me. I mean, again, a guy we have in our top 32 that we hadn't seen before, so you want to go and, and verify what you saw on film, in person, and it was just that. I mean, he's committed to Notre Dame, still some other schools floating around out there. I know Florida's coaches were there. I think Notre Dame's coaches were there. I couldn't identify him. I think they were, like, wearing um, some 
under the radar clothing. I don't know why. I mean, normally I can pick out a coaches like it's nothing. I just couldn't see the Notre Dame guys. Florida State was also there. We also know Alabama has been kicking the tires on Keon Keeley. So we've mentioned it at length on this show before. You know, what happens with Keon Keeley? Does Notre Dame hold on to him? You know, this represents a massive win for Marcus Freeman, but he's got to get it across the finish line. And I just, you know, I, I, I was impressed with Keon Keeley. Feel good where we have him in the rankings and excited to see what he does as a senior because I think his best football is still ahead of him. Dynamic player. He's sitting there at number nine in the top 24-7 right now. I, I love the kid. I think the biggest thing for us was, you know, one of us being able to go down there and get to see him in person. I'm glad that you came back. Uh, with what sounds like an, an excellent report on him. I got to go down to New Orleans this weekend, only a few blocks away from where I grew up and got to see the nation's top pastor in Arch Manning. So some thoughts for him. That was the first time I got to see him live. To me, he looked every bit of what you want and the number one player in the country. Uh, and, and there were some questions really coming into the day, but I got there an hour uh, before really practice started, got to see him kind of go through his individual process, his routine. He's very regimented in terms of how he approaches that kind of a, a quiet confidence uh, to him, just kind of watching him. Uh, doesn't really converse much in terms with, with the teammates. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. There's just a high level of intensity and focus. And for me, really, this trip was, you know, we've been watching him now for, for two to three years. There's three years of tape on him dating back to his freshman season. He's 25 and six as a starter. So there is a level of familiarity in terms of what you're getting with the player for me is this is a Manning legacy. And I kind of wrote about this in, in Coop's corner, the difficulty that comes with evaluating the type of player, like an arch Manning, you know, scouts call it the fog of confusion. And I think all that is, is all these different uh, dynamics and storylines that surround such a notable prospect like a Manning where you have to balance the objective and the subjective, uh, attributes of a player like this. It's so easy to get caught up. Uh, and, and now the next generation of somebody that comes from the royal family and the bloodline of Arch Manning, of, of uh, Peyton and Eli, you know, four Lombardi trophies between his two uncles. Um, but seeing him and still being careful not to loop him into that conversation at 17 years old. But in terms of the way that he plays, I mean, he, he's six foot four plus. He's 215, maybe floating around 220 pounds. He carries it exceptionally well. He moves really well in the pocket. And the biggest thing for him is I just wanted him to be more consistent. He had shown that over the last three years. I thought a, a little bit at times last year that came into question, but he was crisp. I mean, he can make every throw on the field in terms of the short to intermediate, uh, in terms of driving the ball down the field. I thought from 30 plus out, he threw the deep ball exceptionally well. If you want to nitpick his game just a, a little bit, it's probably 40-plus. Maybe that ball starts to die on him, but that's really not where the game is going to be played. So in terms of the processing power, in terms of him being able to make quick, timely decisions, I thought all that was clean. He had one or two throws. I think he won it back. Uh, but in terms of that, he didn't let him that haunt him the rest of his performance. I was super pleased, and I came away more excited about the player uh, leaving Friday than I did going into it, which is really not something I expected. Uh, but I love them where we got them right now. I got to ask you about the uh, the camcorder, right? There was a few different schools out there. Obviously, we're in the spring evaluation period. I saw you tweeting about it. I don't know which Texas coach it was, but they're out there with the camcorder. I think Max Preps had a video of it. 
I was at a game on Wednesday night, Troy Bulls, top 247 linebacker. You had Alabama's Pete Golding with a camcorder, right? And you had uh, Schumann from Georgia with a camcorder filming this guy. And I don't know. I got to ask you, is this optics? Because I feel like this is just optics. Like, are these guys really going back and, and passing that film along? Or are they just trying to make the kids feel like someone's watching and it's just a prop? Because it seems like this stems from the Nick Saban uh, operation, the, 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 the camcorders. Um, just use your phone. You guys can use your phone. It's the same thing. For sure it does. You know, really what they do, though, is they use these camcorders, which, you know, is probably the best quality. And then they'll, they'll send it back to headquarters. Uh, you know, uh, and, and basically what they'll do, they'll have a group of usually typically student interns or, or full time uh, recruiting employees who will take that film, cut it up, splice it and then put it uh, alongside in, in uh, the, the rest of the film as well. So and then usually the way that that goes, that will be filed uh, by the most recent um tape available so you know for troy bowles or arch manning and and listen i don't i don't don't think especially in arch manning's case there's nothing that they're going to see that arch manning did on friday that's going to make them go back and scratch their head i do think it does have a little bit more uh functionality in terms of the way that they can use it i do think it's smart aj milwe out of all the coaches there pete golding was there in new orleans as well um also joe sloan the quarterback's coach uh, from LSU was there in, in Georgia was represented as well, but AJ Milwee was the only one recording. I think for him, and and maybe uh, from the direction of Steve Sarkeesian in Texas, this is just another exposure point where they can actually take that film, go back, put it in their system, and then have a video call like we're having right now, and be able to present that to Arch Manning and coach him through some things that they feel like they can kind of teach up a little bit. Um, so I do think it really does have some more functionality than, than what you see. Uh, you know, you talked about it not too long ago on the show. I do think, and I've talked to some coaches uh, on the road, especially in the SEC, you know, the spring evaluation period to me is more optics in politics than anything. You know, I'm watching these coaches outside of A.J. Milwee, who was in a couple feet of Arch Manning the entire afternoon. Uh, all these coaches are potted together. And you know, I don't know what they're taking from that experience other than maybe meeting with the Newman coaching staff, showing face, uh, showing face to, to um, Arch, uh, Arch Manning's grandfather, who was there as well. Right. So um, all that's important, but it's politics in terms of the evaluation period. And maybe Arch Manning's a bad example. I don't know how much they're really getting out of that when you're when you're talking about trying to evaluate your board for what it is right now and some of the top prospects on it. Let me give you this this take that I've been marinating on all morning as I sulk over my Florida Panthers. I think the offers that go out this week or the next week are real offers, right? So we see all these scholarship offers go out at the beginning of the evaluation period. And those, to me, especially down here in South Florida, are just kind of spot offers. Oh, yeah, he's got an offer. It doesn't really mean anything. I think if you're getting an offer now, it means that they've went back and they watch what you might have filmed on your camcorder. Uh, and now that matters, or they're going through uh, their board and stacking it up to your spring game if you're in a state where you actually played 11 on 11 against someone else. So I think the offers we see over the next few days, and there's been some that have gone out, you know, Jakeem Jackson, our guy, uh, offered by Ole Miss yesterday, uh, Cameron James, top 247 defensive lineman, he's racked him in. I think if you get the later they are in the spring evaluation period, the more that to me, in my eyes, those offers actually mean something. 
Well, we had two tiers dating back to Alabama, and a lot of programs adopt this, but they, they talk about offer, take, offer of must. That was the language, right? The difference between those, offer, take, is pretty self-explanatory. If a player wants to commit, you're taking that on the spot, that that verbal. The offer, if must, is more as like we, we need to see something or we're moving down our board and we missed out on a couple of our priority targets. For a guy like Troy Bowles, that's a little bit more believable to me. Right. Or, or a guy like Cameron James. Right. Who, who's a little bit more, <clears throat> excuse me, more of a um, recent name in, in a projection. Now they have to go back. They have to look at the tape and, and what they do. And you mentioned it, but they restack their board. Um, so I do think that spring exposure, obviously, all the footage that they're getting from third party vendors as well. They're kind of taking in a lot of this data uh, and context. And then from there, they're going to reassess their board. Now, a guy like Arch Manning. It's completely for show. Uh, but, you know, you get into the conversation of Troy Bowles and maybe they're trying to make a decision. They can only take one linebacker that year. Um, you know, that type of information and that type of exposure is going to prove critical uh, in that point in the process. All right. Well, let's let's transition parlay that right into Georgia. Huge, massive recruiting weekend on Saturday. I don't know how these guys do it, man. I'm, I'm burnt from the grind. You know, and then on Saturday, they're hosting their scavenger hunt. Tons of visitors on campus. Again, Steve Wilfong had full coverage. One visitor I want to highlight, uh, Grayson Pup Howard, top 247 linebacker. I think I was on the show a few months ago after or a few weeks ago, and I was talking him up. He was in Athens on Saturday. Next day comes out with a top five that includes Georgia, Clemson, uh, South Carolina, Texas A&M, and Florida. Um, and from my understanding, Georgia really, really, really likes this kid. So I'm interested to see how this recruitment shakes out because I still think the pulse of the recruitment right now is that South Carolina might lead for Pup Howard. So he was one of the headliners. I know Jaden Wayne, five-star defensive lineman. He took his official visit. Um, and I, I think we've kind of discussed this in the past using these. Not This isn't even a summer official visit. I would, this is like a spring official visit. Um, so there was, a, there was a ton of targets there. Um, and it, it just seemed like that was the, the, the big, big weekend for everyone in terms of who had the biggest event. MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any other guys from Georgia? I know you've talked about Grayson Howard, who I'm going to have to go back and revisit because I remember you saw him on the road recently, liked him a lot. I know Georgia uh, is certainly kind of starting to pick up their interest with them in South Carolina and the SEC East. Uh, you're going to have to keep an eye on them. But is there anybody else? I know we talk about Jakeem Jackson now, right? That's kind of one that we, we go back and uh, maybe kind of smile at a little bit because that was a big win for you getting him into the top 24-7 when we did. But is there anybody else uh, that Georgia fans should maybe keep an eye on from this weekend that you like? Well, I think Cameron James, you know, I just mentioned him, the, the top 247 defensive lineman out of Orlando. He was there first kind of visit. I was actually on the phone with him just a few minutes ago. He hasn't set up his official visits. My crystal ball is on Florida, 
But like we thought, some of these SEC schools are going to peek onto his frame and, and, and try to figure it out. So I think he's a name to know. Jakeem Jackson, I think uh, Georgia was kind of feeling that out. And they're in an interesting situation when it comes to cornerback recruiting. Already got a guy in a boat. We know Fran Brown, who came from Rutgers, really likes Daniel Harris, who is a guy we just gave a fourth star out of Miami, Florida. A uh, bit of a tools projection. He's got all the traits. Uh, needs to kind of mature, and I think a guy you stash on your roster. So he could be cornerback number two in the class. And then Georgia's still right in the thick of things with Cormani McLean, the five-star uh, cornerback out of Lakeland, Lake Gibson. He told Blake Alderman of Swamp 247 on Thursday after his spring game that Georgia is going to get an official visit that last weekend of June. So, you know, I kind of build that as a Florida-Alabama battle. But I said, you hey, you can't count out what is going to go on with Georgia. So he wasn't there, but it's interesting. I, you know, I'm, and I want to know how this all shakes out for, for cornerbacks, other official visitors for Georgia, Sadir Mitchell, big body uh, defensive lineman out of Virgin Catholic up there in New Jersey. And then you had Deshaun Womack, uh, top two, four, seven defensive lineman out of uh, St. Francis Academy right there in Baltimore. So, you know, Georgia, had a stacked defense and it's not surprising that most of these visitors are on the defensive side of the ball. Cause again, who would not want to play for that unit? I mean, heck you don't have to be a full-time starter and you can go in the first round of the NFL draft or at least day two. That goes to show Georgia's kind of recruiting chops, especially on the, on the evaluation front. But I, I love Deshaun Womack out of St. Francis in, in Baltimore. This is a guy who's continued to put it together. We got our next rankings release uh, for 2023 in the top 24-7 coming out in July. Deshaun Womack, at least in my position, is going to be a guy that's going to be moving up the board. Uh, really dynamic pass rusher. Uh, that's kind of have a, a little bit of a tweener frame, but that can give you a lot of versatility, whether that's standing him up on the edge or playing in a three-point stance. I love Deshaun Womack. That is such a fit at the University of Georgia there. But, Drew, let's move on. IMG spring game, what, what were some of your takeaways from there? Yeah, the beauty of IMG spring game is it's always on YouTube, right? And, uh, you know, this is something that I've watched for two to three years, and it just kind of gives you a little insight into what's going in on at uh, essentially the top – high school program in the country. I mean, it's IMG Academy, you know, quick takeaways, Carnell Tate, he caught a touchdown. I thought the most impressive thing for him. And I tweeted it out on Twitter, on my, uh, on my Twitter, Andrew underscore Ivans is uh, Jarrett Gibson takes a screen pass 80 yards for a touchdown. He doesn't get into the end zone. If Carnell Tate doesn't take off on a dead sprint and kind of wedge his way between two blockers and, and spring Gibson free. So, you know, I think with, with where football is and, you know, everyone wants these wide receivers. At the end of the day, you want wide receivers that are going to block and be able to play special teams. And to me, I, I think I saw a little bit of that uh, from Carnell Tate. Uh, Jonathan Eccles, 2024 defensive end. We have him in our top 10 of the rankings. If you don't know that name now, learn it because he's he's going to be a stud. He's the guy everyone's after. Uh, last year played football up in Georgia. Did a little bit of everything. Tight end, wide receiver, defensive back, quarterback. He's now an edge rusher at IMG Academy, and I think he might have been the best player on the field at times this past Thursday. Multiple sacks, dips and bends his way around the edge. And what's super notable and encouraging about him is his his testing numbers are off the charts, measurables as well. So he was he was super impressive. Um, quarterback, I'm still interested to see what happens there at IMG Academy. I mean, I guess it's one of the more prolific. Uh, high school quarterback positions. You know, most of those guys normally go on to find success. And I still think they're kind of searching for answers. Jaden Bradford, a top 247 kid out of South Carolina, he transferred in. I thought he was all right. I uh, don't know if he's their number one guy, but I will say this um, as long as I've been covering IMG, 
IMG Academy, he's probably the one that is the best at running some some RPOs and stuff. So if if you watch high school football, I would expect IMG um, to to run the ball a little bit more with the quarterback here in, in 2022. One of the best programs year in and year out. Always love watching their film. Francis Malgoa, another guy in the top 24-7, I think, hovering right there in the top 15. I think I believe we have him at number 13. Uh, that's going to be a, really a guy that I want to watch this this season coming up. You talked about Jonathan Eccles. I, I cannot wait to turn on the film and, and see what he does this year. That was a guy that we kind of comped uh, a little bit to Jahad Campbell, the Alabama signee, uh, who was one of the best players without a doubt in this last year's class uh, in 2022. But Drew, let's move on to our new segment, High Low Casino. And I think there's some fans that have some grievances in the state of Florida because they're coming after you. And so, listen, if this is the first time you're hearing about High Low Casino, this is our first time doing it. But basically, the uh, really the point of this segment is that if there's a prospect out there that that you're listening to this show right now that you think is ranked too high or too low, send them in. Give us a submission. You can tweet at me at cpatagna at or excuse me at cpatagna twenty four seven. And then we'll get those submissions in. And then it's our job to defend those or maybe the off chance that we actually agree with you. And I, I tell you what, I was kind of going through a couple of these guys this morning. I'm like, OK, these guys got some points. But let's start with the first two out of the state of Florida. I'll let you take these wide receivers. Andy John uh, is a guy that we have ranked as a number 63 receiver in the country, 88 Overall is his rating. He is a three-star, 40 receptions, 733 yards last year. Had a really productive game against IMG as well. Six receptions, 122 yards. So, Drew, where do you stand on Andy John? I'm coming around on him, all right? And this is even before this this, this came up, just kind of talking with some different people inside the, the coaching community. And, you know, Andy Jean, to me, you know, I, I would just love to see like an alpha factor from him in, in some type of setting. And, you know, the counter to that is you brought it up. He played one of his best games ever against IMG Academy last year. Six catches, 130 yards, two touchdowns going up against legit, you know, five-star cornerbacks. I think Dalen Everett might have been tasked with him. So he's produced on the biggest stages. I, I just would love to see a little more alpha in him. And I, I will say this, you know, what, what started to change my tune and my thoughts toward Andy Jean was him anchoring the, the, the four. I think he anchored the four by one and the four by 400, or maybe it was the four by one for Miami Northwestern at the regional track meet. You know, there's some questions. Does he have that top end gear? And as someone put it to me, he's only going to get faster. And as someone else I trust in the scouting industry put it, you know, normally these Northwestern kids, they're best football and, and they only get better in college. And they compared Andy Jean in a way to Tutu Atwell, who we saw. You know, former FAU quarterback, commit, turn, Louisville, wide receiver, now in the NFL, uh, early, early pick. So, you know, we'll, we'll see some more from him. Um, you know, he's going to be at this event in, in, in Las Vegas, I, I, I think the second week of June. But, yeah, I think there's definitely a case that could be made that maybe he should be a little bit higher. And I think once we dissect and go through these wide receiver rankings, that might actually be the case. He might rise up in the rankings, I think. You know, once we get outside of that top 20 guys, you know, a lot of parts are interchangeable. Shout out to our boy at Manny 1203 for the Andy Jean shout out there. Now, you know, it is it is interesting in terms of like you might be asking yourself, I don't want to speak for Andrew here, but like what is the piece 
in terms of Andy Jean going forward, and we'll just use him as an example, going from an 88 to an 89 to maybe even in that four-star range. You know, I think that's a speed piece. You you turn on the tape, and certainly that doesn't seem like an, an issue uh, in regards to the play speed in terms of what we have verified 471 in 2021, 11.63 and the 100 meter right there. So a little bit of the, that speed question mark there, I think, with the verifiable data. But in terms of the production, love the kid. Um, and we have him at 88. And if he is a little bit higher, I don't think we're far off. Uh, so, Drew, now segueing to Micah Mays, uh, another guy out of the state of Florida we have ranked as a number 70 athlete, 87 overall, three-sport athlete, a guy that uh, has a excellent track and field background, uh, six one-and-a-half high jump, 17-6 long jump, 45-11-and-a-half triple jump, 42 receptions, 725 yards, Seven touchdowns this past season. Where do you stand on him and his ranking of an 87 as a three-star? Well, this one makes me like smile or or laugh a little bit because like I I, I had like a recruiting crush on Micah Mays. Like I was pounding the table for him to be a guy. I think back in in February maybe. Um, then in the past week or two, he won a state title in the 400 meter dash at Florida's 1A state track meet. Uh, also medaled in the triple jump and the high jump. One of those was a bronze. One of those was a gold. I don't know which one. And then this past Thursday in a spring jamboree, he catches two touchdown passes. So, you know, I, I kind of put this kid on the radar, hyped him up as a potential sleeper guy. And then, you know, over the past two weeks, he checks off all these boxes or, or elevates his profile even more. So now the ranking looks bad on him. But I couldn't anticipate – um, you know, him doing that type of stuff. And I'll say this with Micah Mays, there was a time when I thought maybe you try him out at defensive back. I mean, he's over six foot one. Uh, I know his coaches were going to entertain him potentially working at safety or corner this year. And I was kind of, you know, thinking maybe this is, this is the guy, a, a guy at defensive back wide receiver, you turn him into a DB, but his tape from that spring uh, jamboree, he elevates, goes up and wins some balls. And then we know he's got the, the the top end gear to pull away from a defense. I think he could be a deep ball specialist. He's got the size. So I'm all on board with him to be a wide receiver. Um, and, 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 you know, the three schools that are recruiting him the hardest uh, have had some guys drafted recently. Uh, Wake Forest, NC State, uh, Georgia Tech, but Boston College was in there. So they, all, the, most of those schools know a thing or two about, or, or two about wide receivers. So stock up for me. Um, but again, you know, the ranking looks a little bit bad just because we didn't know he'd be a state champ in two events and go out and ball in his spring jamboree until you know just recently. I like that kid. Hey, shout out to at Cam Lemons there who who submitted that one. Man, it, him and Manny twelve oh three coming in hot. Uh, with two submissions out of the state of Florida that even Andrew Ivins likes, which is is a little bit more difficult than you might think. All right, the next two, I'll, I'll, I'll take these. Top 24-7 running back, Mark Fletcher. He is our only two high candidate. That comes from Colt 15 Blackout, who is obviously not an Ohio State fan. So I'll, I'll kind of explain this. Drew, you also have great background on him. I believe you're going to see him this Friday uh, or tonight. 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 Okay, so we'll have some fresh context on Mark Fletcher. I'll just I'll just say this. 23, 23 running backs taken in this year's NFL draft. Mark Fletcher right now for where he is ranked at number 196 would be the 16th pick of the sixth round. So just to put that in context, and really that's what we're doing when we're projecting these guys to Sunday. His stat line this past year, 779 yards rushing, 
8.1 yards per carry, 97.4 yards per game, so just under 100. Uh, 13 touchdowns, only eight games played, and he was averaging just about 13 touches per game. Mark Fletcher is a change of pace change of pace back he's a north south runner and a guy that i really think is going to fit well within ryan day's offense at ohio state with the buckeyes i think he's got a little bit more to him in terms of his short area quickness his separation quickness and his short area explosiveness so i like him he's he's hovering around 220 pounds at six foot one plus uh he is a load uh in terms of what you're getting i think he is more of a high floor prospect than he is a high ceiling prospect but to me it's all about the fit and it's all about the need. And there's always going to be a need for these type of players on Sunday. And the type of value, I think that's probably where he's going to be anywhere between that sixth and seventh. And a guy that I was kind of thinking of who was undrafted, so I will give you that point that he kind of comped to, was LJ Scott out of Michigan State uh, from a, a couple years back who ended up signing with the Baltimore Ravens uh, after not being drafted. But uh, a big body there, but certainly, you know, I like where we have Mark Fletcher. I've kind of gone back and forth on this. We've we've moved him up the board. I think this is kind of a really good range. Maybe he kind of jumps in that that fifth round, bottom of the fifth round type of range. But I kind of like where we have him. Drew, what you know this player really well. You're obviously going to see him tonight. What what are your thoughts on this? Uh, it's just a bad year for running backs nationally, right? Is it not? It's just we we're we're, we're kind of searching for guys, and I'm going through our running back rankings. And I don't know who behind him I would say, let's move ahead of Mark Fletcher. Like, I just kind of think he is what he is. You know, you mentioned he's hovering around 220 pounds. I think he's like 230 pounds. I mean, if you're looking to comp him to a body style, it's legitimately might be Derrick Henry just because he's that big. Um, you know, I do think there are some durability concerns. Uh, but, I, 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 you know, what, what I like about Mark Fletcher is the ability to pass block. I also like his ability to catch the ball out of the backfield. Um, so, you know, I think there's two studs in the state. I'm a Cedric Baxter guy right behind him. You have Richard Young. I think there's a big drop off after that. And then I would go Mark Fletcher. And then what everyone else is behind that, you know, he's he's the lead chase pack for those two. So uh, I, I'm a fan. I think he's a perfect fit at Ohio State. Not saying we should cater our rankings to that. But I do think there's a number of offenses around the country where he can come in, carve out a role as a change of pace guy. You know, it's third and three. He's going to get you four. I think that's how you kind of view Mark Fletcher as a running back. I'm a traits guy, but he is a football player. I don't like to get into that like football player type of deal, but he does play at a very good program at American Heritage. I think we've seen it before. Um, only played eight games last year, like I said, on 13 touches, averaged almost 100 yards a game. So a lot to like there. I like where we have Mark Fletcher. Uh, so I think he's probably going to stay within that range. The next guy is Lance Hurd out of Neville, the offensive tackle out of my home state of Louisiana. We have him as the number four, or excuse me, number 24 offensive tackle. Uh, he's also a four-star and rated a 90. I think this is a really good uh, candidate here for a guy that can bump into the top 24-7. He played opposite of LSU signee Will Campbell last year as a left tackle, kind of watching him again this morning. Uh, is a guy that's still developing at the position, but you love his size, uh, you know, floating around six foot five plus, uh, I would imagine probably around 320 pounds plus, uh, more than a functional athlete, I would say above average to good athlete. I think he's still developing in terms of his technique, which is expected uh, from a lot of those guys at that position. But this right here in terms of this submission from my guy, Ben, one five, four, two, one. I think you're right on. And I, I do think this is a guy maybe as soon as July 
that we're going to work into the top 24-7. We're going to have to find a home for him. Uh, but we have 23 offensive tackles uh, in the top 24-7. 22 got drafted in this year's past NFL draft. And that's, listen, that, that that's kind of part of our process, not evaluating year to year, but maybe taking that data over the last four to five years and kind of seeing the trends. This is a very deep offensive line class. I just got through going through the audit. I love all 23 of those guys. I mean, you're talking about a guy like Peyton Kirkland and your backyard drew a top 24 seven offensive lineman who's got the likes of Florida, Miami, some other top programs coming after him. It's a guy we have right now currently in the seventh round range. Uh, you know, that I think for a lot of people as a functional athlete, you got to melt them down a little bit, but could be higher. That's how good that class is. It is. No, it is. It, it, and, you know, I think the other thing we got to think about with some of these offensive tackles is they're probably actually going to move to interior offensive linemen for us. You know, I was I was going through some of that list um, today and, you know, that, that, that's something that kind of crossed my mind as well. That's well, a deep class. I love it. Speaking of, okay, a couple of offensive linemen here that we're going to talk about. We're going to call this, this is, we're going to have a new name for it once we get the naming rights of our show, which I think is actually going to be a little bit later than we expected, but hang in there with us. But the stock market, we'll just call it the stock, the Oyster Boys stock market right now. Okay. And we have a couple nicknames for a couple of these stocks. You know, the Cowboys stock is like, hey, this is a pretty risky stock, but you know what? I kind of like it in terms of the high upside. We have some high upside stocks that we like, and then we have some high floor, safe return stocks. Drew, I'm going to get started here if you let me do the honors. This Jaden Platt kid out of Texas committed to Stanford. I'm going to label him a cowboy stock, and I'm going to tell you why. This guy, in terms of his testing uh, in March from what we saw out of him, to me is a top 64 type talent. Uh, right now, we kind of have this guy on on the back end of the top 24-7 as he's been a new name that's emerged. But he's a 10-foot-7 broad. That would have been ranked number one among tight ends in the NFL Combine this past year as a 4-2-2 shuttle. That would have ranked number one uh, in uh, among tight ends at the NFL Combine this year. 7-0-4 in the three-cone. That would have been top five or top six. And a 34-inch vertical, that would have been top six among tight ends as well. So in terms of the physical clay, there is nobody like this at his position group in the class. He is elite in terms of the testing. Now, when you turn on the film, it's, it's a big ball of clay in terms of this guy and what he's going to have to do at the next level to have to continue to develop. But I don't know if there's many other programs in the country that he could go to that he's going to be in a better situation in regards to developing tight ends than Stanford. So I love him as a high upside cowboy stock, another high upside stock is Caden Green out of the state of Missouri. Love this kid. Recently went on an OV to Nebraska. I liked his film. I loved his combine film. Quick twitch, explosives, uh, 6'4 325 pounds plus. But the feet are light. The body quickness is elite. He's got some power in his hands. He's strong at the point of attack, and he is nasty. I like this dude. I cannot wait to watch his film. And then another offensive lineman, Northwestern, with their top eight class. High floor, safe returns. I love this kid. I had another top 64 grade on him. This is Jordan Knox out of the state of South Carolina. He just committed to Pat Fitzgerald and the Northwestern Wildcats. This kid plays left tackle. I believe he's six two and a half plus, floating around 320. He'll move inside. He's either going to play guard or center at the next level. But in terms of the body quickness, the leverage, uh, the patience, uh, and, and really the control that he plays with, he can get out and 
space, can play at the second level. He's a nasty dude. Uh, Northwestern certainly, dating back to their time with Rashawn Slater, has done a really good job at the offensive line. But those are my three guys in the stock market right now. If you're investing, it's time to get in the offensive line business. I like those two guys or three guys. Uh, Drew, who do you like in the stock market? Who who should we be keeping an eye on? I'm going to give you two guys, I, but I haven't. Cla- I see you classified them for me on our sheet here as as if they're cowboy stock or high upside stock. I'm just going to go high upside stock. One of them is Micah Mays, who we just talked about. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of him. You know, maybe my my dream and my vision of him playing defense is is slowly dying, but I think he's a guy. I think he's someone that can go play in the ACC, uh, SEC, make an impact. So. You know, we are going to continue to monitor him and, and track him, but don't be surprised if more and more, I don't know, household brand names get involved in that recruitment. You know, I know Miami, Florida State, two schools that have been kicking the tires. And again, he's long, he's twitchy. Dad played quarterback at Grambling. I think mom also ran track. I, I could be wrong on that, but he's just an all around athlete. And, and the more I kind of think about it, you know, given the data, what we know about him, he probably needs to be higher in the rankings. One other guy, um, just because I watched his huddle yesterday, Gerlinus Milford, and I know I just butchered his name. I met him one time. He's at Lakeland, Florida, right? So Lakeland, Florida, that's where we have four-star wide receiver Tyler Williams. This is a school that has churned out plenty of guys over the years, the Pouncey Twins, Chris Rainey, Demarcus Bowman, um, Keon Zipper, Lloyd Summerall. I mean, uh, the Dreadnoughts always have some talent. I I actually think there's a a country song written about uh, Lakeland football because when I was there uh, back during the season, there was a concert uh, going on during this whole thing. So it's a storied program, but Milford, this is an undersized interior defensive lineman. Uh, I love his his upside, his tape. Finished fourth at the state weightlifting meet in the snatch, hit a 225-pound snatch, which is to me is, is pretty impressive. Um, he's another guy who also wrestles. He throws discus. He, he kind of checks all those boxes in terms of what he does as a multi-sport athlete. But put on put on what he did against Venice, which is a very talented program in his spring game. Two-way player generating a, a, a ton of push. And, you know, I, I think a lot of recruiters probably go by and, and don't like the fact that he's 6'2", um, doesn't have a ton of length to him. But these are guys that get after the quarterbacks. Reminds me a little bit of Zane Durant last cycle, who I've said numerous times, I wish we had made a fourth star. He's now at Penn State uh, and has shot up in the rankings. But Milford, to me, He's a guy that maybe a a Florida or Miami, all of a sudden they kind of do a double take and come back on. I think he's got official visits set up here in uh, in the month of June. I know he's going to go to Kansas. Um, Pittsburgh's also involved in there. So he's a stock up guy for me. And I'm uh, I want to know if anyone else gets a you know, who goes on him now that that tapes out there. Right. This is good. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this every week with, with Drew on this. And this is kind of a, just another way we can get some names maybe out on y'all's radar uh, of some guys that we're liking in the process, but maybe not might not be in that top 24-7 or maybe we haven't talked about as much. But Drew, I know you got construction guys coming, but I want to get to these questions. Uh, and a lot of these coming from our very own at 24-7 Sports. I want to start with Chris Hummer, who does an incredible job. If you don't follow his work, give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, Chris Hummer uh, doing a great job following the transfer portal, everything that happens there. Uh, also with the NCAA uh, and all the changes that have come uh, recently there. But he asked, given the evaluation period is coming to a close, what position did you always feel most required an in-person eval? In other words, which position can you take the least away from on huddle? And I think that's a 
That's a great question. I think the one that usually came back surprising, like in terms of what we thought a player was going to be during the spring evaluation period and what the live exposure actually said to us was always on the offense or defensive line. Uh, I think just in terms of, of the way that uh, it's hard to project these guys in the way that their body is going to physically mature and develop uh, from the time that they are 15, 16 years old to the time that they're 17, 18. Uh, in terms of adding weight, adding mass to their frame, or in terms of melting down and taking weight off their frame as well. Um, so I always thought that was one. I, you know, Scott Huff, offensive line coach at Washington, always loved when he came back off the road and we kind of compared notes of what he saw and what we expected. Um, and there was always just a little bit more than we thought. He was like, listen, man, like this, and it, they can add color, add context to the conversation. Like this guy hasn't been coaching, or this guy, listen, he is what he is. He's, he's been going. Uh, and having, you know, private individual uh, workout sessions since the time he was 14. This is why he's uh, maybe a little bit more um, developed in that area. So I would say offense and defensive line. Drew, curious to see what you think. <laughs> I mean, I, this this might just be more of how I think it is. It, it, quarterback, right? I, I, you know, you hear so many times about coordinators and, and quarterback coaches and even head coaches. They want to see a kid throw in person. Um, you know, I, I, I do think the highlight tape can at times be a little deceiving. Um, you know, fortunately now with, with, with certain companies out there, I mean, you can watch uh, combine type footage and, and see these kids make 100 different throws and, and with the, all the different arm angles. And I think that stuff's so important. Uh, so me for me, and I, I don't consider myself the strongest of quarterback values, but I think if you go and see a kid throw, you kind of know right away. Um, so that, that, that's that's the way where I would lean. And I don't I know I'm not the only one that shares that opinion, just based on some of the conversations I've had this spring uh, mingling with college coaches. I agree. And I think that to, to add on to your point, I think the biggest thing over the last two weeks that I've learned seeing these quarterbacks in person, you take away a lot from just kind of seeing the way that these guys interact and, and kind of go through their process, approach their process. Uh, you know, the the level of focus or intensity that they have throughout the day and can they carry that? Can that be consistent? I think there's a lot to take away from the intangible side uh, of the quarterback live exposure as well. But next question comes from uh, Pate State. Josh Pate, he's, I had to text him and be like, can you explain this to me like I'm four? He asked, what is the proper way to interpret the value of a star rating in the grand scheme of what makes a successful college football player. And then, you know, we texted, he was kind of talking about a little bit of like the pie reference, like how much of this is tangible? How much can you account for, um, you know, the physical traits versus, you know, what's between the ears and the, and the, and the mental uh, makeup? I'll just say this in terms of, you know, our process at Washington, it was different than any other place that I'd been under Chris Peterson. Uh, you know, in terms of the amount of homework that we put in on what we called the wiring, uh, the football instincts, the football intelligence, the competitive temperament of a player, not only that, but the character background, the academic background. Uh, and to me, what that does is is two things It you learn more about the floor of the player uh, when you're able to, to nail down that part of the process. And we know about a certain guy and that kind of has to match what we see on film. But once we start getting the answers to these questions, um, we feel more confident in our process and more convicted in our process in terms of what we're getting. Now, in terms of the star process, I will say this, it, it is 
and Drew, I'm, I want to get your opinion on this because I'm very new to the industry on this side of things. But to me, I've always thought this, even on the other side of things, is like this is a continuing, evolving industry that is only getting better and only improving as access to information, as technology improves. And as us being in this position to be able to go back retroactively and study some of the things that maybe we've gotten wrong in the past and then study uh, draft data as well and apply that fluidly uh, to our process. So, you know, there is some weight, I believe, especially when it comes to the top 247 players. Obviously, I, I take a lot of pride and so does Andrew and so does the rest of our team in that area. Uh, but in terms of what I will say for those three stars out there, like a, a prime example of this is like Bryce Lovett commits to Florida last week. Drew, I think you had him at an 86 or an 87. And, I, you know, the response is, well, if you love him, why is he an 86 or an 87? And it's like you said, like three stars can be good players too. And there's a lot more context uh, there that's available that you can add to add color to that conversation. But, uh, you know, a ranking is is more indicative. And I, and I saw uh, one of our listeners kind of tweeted this back and kind of had a really good perspective on this. It's more of kind of like where we see – the ceiling of the player. And there were a couple guys from this last year that we had ranked really high in 2022 from an objective lens. If you just kept it objective, there were no brainers in that conversation. But if you add the subjective context to what we know about the mental makeup, to what we know about the character, then that starts to cloud your evaluation a little bit, which I don't think is fair in our position because you're not going to have the same amount of access to 246 other players maybe as you have to that one. Uh, so I think for us, it's important to keep this as objective as possible based on what we see on film, what we see with the physical traits, what we see with the athletic upside. And obviously there's so many different puzzle pieces and, and moving variables that go into this, um, you know, our job is to assess that, apply it, uh, and how that impacts their potential future. I just think it is too difficult of a job for us to say, okay, now let's throw in another variable here with the character plot uh, and, 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 you know, implement that into the evaluation process. I think that just makes it too difficult. But to me, it's more of, okay, this is the type of the, the four between the four and the three star, you there's an understanding of that there's a difference between the physical makeup of the player. That's kind of the way I see it. I think the the most I don't want to say like, uh, overlooked thing is people think rankings. They, they think four stars got to be, you know, you got to sign out only four stars. It, it, my pushback and my counter that I mean, when we put an eighty eight or an eighty nine on a guy. We we're essentially saying we think this is a power five starter, a guy that can potentially make an impact. You know, you know how many times you watch the NFL draft and all these college stars aren't selected; they turn into undrafted free agents. It's like that's what we're saying. This guy could be a good college player. He just might not have the traits, or he might lack one thing, or some organization isn't going to use a pick on them. That happens every year in the NFL draft. So, you know, if we were saying a guy's an 86 or an 87, they were saying that's a starter for you uh, uh, up front. And I, I think that gets taken away so much. I think just how rankings were always done in the past. I mean, no one really had that 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 laid that groundwork or that framework. I mean, we always, 
used to think, you know, the best, the best were the, were, were the rank, the highest. And those were the best players in high school. I mean, I had people come to me all the time. They're like, how's this kid not a five-star? He's the best kid in the youth football leagues. He's the best kid uh, as a freshman. He, he played as a freshman at one of the top high schools in South Florida. I'm like, that's not what the rankings are supposed to be in any way. We're trying to project five, six, seven, eight years from now. Um, so I, I think that gets lost a, a lot. And I will say, I do think the rankings are probably the best they've ever been. You know, I, you know, in, in terms of all the data that's available, all, all the evaluations and in, in the events, uh, you know, I, I, I would argue that it's only going to get better from here on out. Um, and you, you mentioned the character stuff and, and all that. I mean, who knows how we incorporate that. But I do think uh, just like we've seen at the next level, at the college level, and we've seen at the NFL level, more and more people are trying to, you know, get that into the evaluation process. And, you know, I've listened to scouting, scouting podcasts, NFL scouts talking about how they think, you know, you can learn the most about an individual on that first evaluation with an underclassman and you shake hands with them because that person's not been coached to say anything. And, you know, I've thought long and hard about that just in, in terms of when I meet a kid for the first time when they're a sophomore or a junior, that's the purest that kid's going to be because anything after that, you know, there's going to be some some narrative that's that's try to be driven. So I, I always think back to that as well. That's a great point. You know, and I think the other reference point that I think is important to keep in mind when we go through this evaluation process, it is a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot when you're doing it on the other on the other side. You know, there's a little bit of luck involved in this process as well. It's not a, it, it, it's not a, uh, a science. It's an art form. I always talk about that. And it's a constantly refined practice where you have to go back and you have to understand your mistakes, where you made the mistakes. And every prospect is different. The wiring. Yeah, there might be some comparisons in terms of what you can make or some similarities on what you see on the field. But in terms of, of what makes that player tick, do they actually love the game? which is the simplest yet most difficult question to answer, which requires a lot of homework, is really important and critical to that player's success. So, you know, admittedly, when we go into this, it is a crapshoot. You know, so for us to improve our odds, the, the, the type of uh, attributes uh, and indicators that we're going to lean on in the process are going to be the things that we've seen be successful on Sundays, uh, which is why we always kind of, come back not only to the game tape, that's always going to be our baseline, um, but to the athletic indicators as well, which is why we talk about multi-sports data, why we talk about track and field data, uh, why we talk about two-way, three-way snaps. Those are important. Those all tell us a little bit of something about a prospect. Um, you know, so it's not a refined process. If you're hitting on 60% in the NFL of your draft picks, you're out of this world. You know, that's what they'll tell you in an NFL front office, right? So, um, to, to sit here and say that we're going to get every single one of these guys right would just be a, a blatant lie. Uh, but we're doing the best with the information that we have, uh, and hopefully we're going to continue to refine that process. But, um, Drew, moving on, uh, this is a great question. This comes from Adam Stanko, who's, who's our VP at 24-7. He asks, who is the best evaluator you have ever met, and how much would your opinion change if they had a different – view of a prospect than you did. I had to think about this one for a while. I had three or four guys on this list, but probably the one that I respect the most is actually a young guy that I interned with at the University of Alabama who is now a scout for the Cleveland Browns and an area scout at that and a very good one. His name's Josh Cox. 
Um, and he's the most analytical buttoned up scout I've ever been around just in terms of, you know, he's going to ask the right questions. Um, not only from a character standpoint, not only from a, a background standpoint, uh, but in terms of the question marks, um, on the analytics side in, in, in terms of checking boxes and how that applies in today's NFL. He's, he's one of the best scouts and one of the best eyes that I've been around. And I think he's just got a, um, he's got a keen eye uh, for how the current trends and patterns of today's game apply to an evaluation. Um, and I was talking to him last week on Friday when I was, uh, walking to Arch Manning's spring game. And he does, you know, he'll hit me up. He, he does this project. He'll, he'll evaluate four to five high school quarterbacks coming out. So he'll call me, get a list of names together, and then he does his homework, and he has this process that he puts him through. Uh, competition is, is, a, is a key part of this. Accuracy is a key part of this. Um, and he kind of puts them through this, uh, I would say, uh, you know, testing process that he's put together himself and he was kind of giving me his thoughts on arch manning and this is a really good example and he said i kind of see him as a trevor lawrence light in terms of the prospect and i don't know if i'd have him uh, you know where you guys have him and i thought wow to myself like this only makes this exposure even more important for me because here's a guy that i completely respect that i know there's some semblance and importance to what he's saying um, but there's also a level of uh, exposure and reference point that I have uh, that currently he doesn't have when he's in the NFL. Um, and I think that's important for it. And for example, is like he doesn't know the other 31 players uh, in the top 32. He doesn't know what the rest of the quarterback market looks like as well, um, which I think that has a really um important place in terms of the positioning of where we place players also positional value as well but he would be one tom gamble at michigan uh was just an encyclopedia uh in terms of the information i could get with him spent a lot of time in the nfl with the 49ers with the eagles uh, now back at michigan jeff ireland was a guy that i've been fortunate enough to get to know he's the assistant gm at the new orleans saints used to be the gm of the miami dolphins um so i'd say all three of those guys are guys that i certainly respect and you know, when you're evaluating, you, you want to be convicted, but you want to be prepared and you want to go back to your notes and you say, OK, this is what I see on film. Um, I think when you're surrounded by other very talented evaluators, they make you look at your evaluation differently, which is such a good thing. Um, and it makes you go back to the tape and it makes, makes you ask those questions. But we talk about refining that process as an evaluator, ultimately, at the end of the day. You know, this type of debate and these questions, which are really healthy questions, it's what make you better at the end of the day. And then, you know, like I can't wait to see what Arch Manning turns out to be in the next three to four years. You know, even beyond that, a lot of these guys uh, that we talked about, where we get it right, maybe where we miss it. Um, but does it make you question? Yes, but I think in a healthy way. And, and I think as long as you do the work, you're going to be convicted on that player. But you do have to leave a little bit room for growth. Oh, I mean, I wish I had some good stories like that. Uh, to me, I mean, I don't, I don't, I haven't had as much, I would guess, uh, NFL or, 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 or college. Most of mine have been, um, 
college coaches that I've interacted with over the years, guys that have ran programs, guys that have had guys go on to get drafted. Um, I don't want to really, you know, toss out a few of the names. Um, but I will say you know, the interesting part, how do you react to when someone pushes back on your evaluation or has a different mindset? And to me, you know, the more I do this, the more I've learned that people just want honest opinions. You know, you don't want groupthink. You want to actually butt heads over kids. And I know me and you, Cooper, will do this all the time. And, you know, that's that's the one thing I've taken away and learned. I mean, stand by what you think. But once you stand by it, be open to the other side of things. Be willing to change your mind uh, about a prospect. And I, that, that's one thing I, I've taken away, you know, just trading notes and comparing notes. I, I think that's one way you can absolutely – learn as much as as you want and just being open to that other side so that's that's what i would say touching on this question yeah and it, it all depends on your mindset being in staff rooms where this has happened you know the the most dangerous uh, part of the evaluation process is ego and if you can find a way to strip that which is extremely difficult and i'm talking from an individual standpoint as well it exists within within everybody because there's certain players that you feel so strongly about that you've had certain exposures to uh, that maybe a different opinion is kind of hard to accept uh, based on the knowledge or secondhand knowledge that another evaluator has that doesn't really compare to what you've seen. Um, so keeping that growth mindset, keeping an open mind, easier said than done, but very critical. Drew, last one that kind of plays off of Hummer's question. It's from our guy, Pin and Pull. Shout out to Pin and Pull. Dude, you were, you were on it every week. You're my guy, man. Always asking questions and, and staying involved. He said, is OL the hardest non-quarterback position to evaluate and project to college? Have you guys changed your OL evaluations at the high school to college football level over time? And what are indications you look at with 15, 16 year olds? So kind of a kind of a loaded question there. Um, but I would say, yeah, I mean, like, like I said earlier, I think the offense and defensive line are, are the hardest to project. I think a lot of that goes down to um, the coaching at the high school level, the offense and defensive line. It's such a nuanced position in terms of timing and in terms of being able to understand leverage uh, and the way you play, un understand uh, different uh, hand placement and attack angles. Um, I think that's so important. You see not only some of the, the best athletes in the world uh, play the offense and defensive line position, but I was just watching a video this morning that, you know, NFL.com uh, tweeted out this morning about Duke Mayweather does a really great job and has the offensive line retreat, um, which was really a response to what Vaughn Miller uh, did a few years back and, and used to gather some of the top pass rushers from around the NFL and study the game and see where they can improve and, and get better. So now you have this class of mental warfare. So I think there's also for interior players, centers, not just centers, but guards as well, there's a high level of functional intelligence that you have to have just in terms of what's being put on your shoulders in terms of the pre-snap calls and responsibilities uh, that you have. So I would say offense and defensive line. I think for us, um, you know, you don't try to weigh that too much in terms of the intelligence standpoint at the high school level. But I mean, shoot, man, we're just looking like we talked about 23 deep uh, in the offensive tackle class in the top 24 seven in 2023. It's like, all those guys have the same thing uh, in terms of what we're looking for. And that is a size athleticism combination. If we can boil it down to its simplest form, you have to have the size, you have to have the length, and you have to have 
the athletic traits and foundation to grow into. And that's kind of what we see. And like, you know, Peyton Kirkland's a great example. Like I look at Peyton Kirkland and I look at this guy, what is Drew size wise? What is he? Six foot six plus, uh, you know, no, sort of six five and he has six, seven. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So 330 pounds, but I look at this guy and you turn on the tape and he is raw uh, with developmental upside. And here's a guy that, is going to certainly benefit from being in a, in a college weight room and strength conditioning department, uh, especially from a nutritional aspect as well. It's hard to gauge these guys and what their ceilings are going to be. I mean, another guy is Caleb Lomu, uh, who we have in the back end of the top 24-7 that Blair and Gulo really likes. He's 265 pounds, and he's got a frame that he's probably going to carry 315, 320 pounds right, uh, exceptionally well at the next level. But in terms of being able to project that now, it's very difficult. Like Josh Connerly was 285 pounds, I think, when we had him in, in San Antonio. That guy is going to put on another 30 pounds uh, more than likely before he suits up for Oregon next season. So those type of things, those those weight changes, Bud Elliott mentions it all the time, how these guys grow, position projections. Trevor Penning was a guy. Lane Johnson was a guy who played quarterback tight end before he eventually moved to, to tackle. Those things are extremely difficult to project. Uh, but – is it the most difficult? Yes. Is it my favorite position to evaluate? Absolutely. I, I, I love the offensive line. Just to follow up kind of more towards that question, I mean, have our rankings and thought process and evaluation process changed? I mean, since I've been part of the rankings crew, I know it has with the offensive linemen. Um, you know, we always do those uh, rankings of uh, after the freshman season, that initial 100, we used to stick a bunch of kids in there. Now we don't want to put any offensive alignment in there because most of the kids that are playing early on as offensive alignment at the varsity level are usually because they are the biggest kids out there. Um, and from what we've seen over time, I mean, you know, a, a lot of the linemen drafted aren't playing offensive line when they're in eighth, ninth and, and 10th grade, they're playing another position and they transition over. I think the other thing we also look for more than ever right now with offensive linemen is multi-sport background. Again, a lot of the guys getting selected these days are, are multi-sport athletes. So, yeah, sure, we love to see the functional athleticism on the field. But definitely, you know, if you're playing basketball, if you're you're throwing, doing throwing events, I mean, that's something that's always going to raise the eyebrows. And, you know, I, I think the spring evaluation period sometimes is so big just to go and see um, body types and how body types changes. You know, I saw a kid this spring and then I saw him again. Uh, a few weeks ago, and, and the body had already changed a little bit, maybe towards more of a negative way. So I, I, I think that in getting eyes on offensive alignment is, is, is absolutely critical and important. And even watching him practice, I've heard that from different college coaches as well. Watching just a kid go through a practice, can you, you, can, you can really learn a lot uh, just in terms of how workable they are and you know how do they take to coaching, even if it's not the best coaching out there. So I think that's, that's something else that you know, we got to consider with the offensive line. I'll tell you this, going back through the top 24-7, the guy that's going to be a huge case study for us is Lucas Simmons. I went back, I watched that tape uh, when we were there in Miami down in February, Drew, when we got to see him, and that's kind of really where he burst on the scene. You, you kind of put a gun in my head and said, make him the alpha of the camp. <laughs> I loved him too, um, but he has certainly moved his way up the board. But you look at the guy, you look at the frame, um, and he's going to be the prototype for what you want in a left tackle. And then you look at the athletic ability and you look at the way that he moves from an agility standpoint. It's elite. The biggest thing for him, he has such a long ways to go in terms of the technical side of his game. Um, he's a little bit more of a body catcher right now in terms of his technique. 
the physicality, I believe, is is also in question at times. But you learn more about his background, him originally being from Sweden, how long he's been playing the game of football. It makes sense and it adds up. So you can't really ding him for that. But at the same time, how high do you go with a guy like that? And how coachable are those things at the next level, right? If we haven't seen him. So we'll be keeping an eye on him. But Drew, before we go, any any last second thoughts, any players you want to put on our crowd's radar, any thoughts about going into the next season for the Florida Panthers? <laughs> you don't want those thoughts. Um, now, I'm closing out this week with spring games. We got uh, American Heritage tonight, St. Thomas Aquinas Thursday. Mike going to see Malik Bryant on Friday. So tons of stuff coming. And then I know we're going to go right into um, summer camp season. Uh, and that overtime event looks like it's going to be one of the biggest events probably since the opening was uh, in, in Dallas. And that, that should be super fun. You know, yeah, they're running around in, in shirts and shorts, but we've seen the cream rides of the crop in those type of events. It's, it's easy to stack wide receivers when they're all running routes. Um, so I'm super excited about that uh, just in terms of an evaluation standpoint. And uh, it'll be another setting where, where guys can prove themselves. We had one last question that got in. Drew, I know you got to go, but I'm going to take this. This came in uh, from a Washington fan who was just asking about the current state of recruiting at the University of Washington. They added top 24-7 playmaker Rashid Williams from Pittsburgh, who Brandon Huffman likes a lot. This is a kid that reminded me a lot of Taj Davis, uh, who's now in the Husky receiver room, uh, was a guy that signed with us when, when I was there. Um, you know, but certainly a guy that can play inside out. I think he plays uh, is going to adapt well at the next level in terms of playing inside. I think he's got a little bit more short area quickness, a little bit more short area burst, uh, and is a guy that's probably going to be a little bit more of a possession red zone, red zone receiver, but a, a big pickup for the Huskies. In terms of the outlook for Kalen DeBoer, um, you know, they're sitting there at 41 right now. Usually you can get a good sense of who a program is going to be within the first couple months on the recruiting trail with the type of targets uh, that these guys are seeking. I don't know. You know, I, I initially when last time we talked about Washington, I, I said it would be a big win for them if they were a top 25 program, if they could return to those days, they were a top 20 program recruiting program under Chris Peterson. I don't I don't really see that. I, I think they're going to be hovering around probably a top 30 class breaking into the top 25, I think would be a win. Um, but I think it's going to be a really important year for Kalen DeBoer on the on the field because I'm, I'm just like me. I'm, I think there's a lot of players and recruits out there that just really aren't sure what to think. Uh, so I think it's going to be more wait and see mode there. So. All right, Drew, uh, for Cooper Patagna, Andrew Ivins, we appreciate you guys as always. We got another week uh, after Memorial Day. We'll come back on Tuesday. I love casinos coming back, stock markets coming back. So if you have any submissions, send them in whenever. Uh, we're ready for them, and we can't wait for another week of that. We appreciate you guys joining us. We'll see you next week.